Good morning. It's good to see everyone uh, today. Uh, I'm excited, especially that uh, get to see my good brother and his family uh, with me, Louie, and uh, the, uh, the gang. Uh, Rebecca, unfortunately, is in California. Not unfortunately for her, but, uh, uh, but unfortunately not, not with us. But it's always good to, good to see them. Uh, <clears throat> I had a great time in uh, Houston. Got to uh, uh, spend some time with uh, not only Macy's mom and dad, but also Sarah's mom and dad, and they're both in that in the Houston church uh, called the Woodlands, and that was uh, fun uh, to be there as well. My granddaughter uh, Judith is doing absolutely fantastic, uh, screaming, hollering, and smiling as she's supposed to do, and so that's uh, that's been nice too. What a uh, beautiful thing to pick her up and know that uh, she has a new heart. <laughs> it's kind of nice. So uh, all fixed up, and we're happy for that. If you open your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, where our reading was, Hebrews chapter 6, and I want to notice, uh, want to notice with you as we have been uh, studying about uh, God's motivations to keep us from giving up keep us from falling away, and keep us enduring. It is uh, one of the great texts of the Hebrew letter uh, to give us this assurance in a passage in which God swore. He leads this up in some motivating promises that we have talked about already. In chapters 1 and 2, he talked about the importance of paying much closer attention to the words of Jesus uh, because he has gone before us to bring us to glory and honor and crown us with glory and honor in his presence. He followed up with that at the emphasis of the promise that it remains for us to enter his rest, and therefore we need to fear lest we should miss this because we need to strive in order to enter that rest. But the greatness of the rest that he has given us is of great motivation then for us to endure. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, 14 and following, he talked about how we have been given a great high priest and therefore with that great high priest ought to with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That little statement we have not talked about in our previous lessons but that statement sets us up for what we're going to read in chapter 6 and verses 13 through 20 and the message there because that's the setup for our great high priest. So make you aware of that as we go. We have looked in chapter 511, and just to be a note, chapter 511 through chapter 6 verse 20, it gives us two sides of motivations. One in chapter 5, 11 through, through chapter 6, verse 6, and 7 is the strongest warning you're going to read about anywhere about falling away. The strongest motivation to continue to push on. But as the Hebrew writer often does, he then goes from there and then steps in and says, let me also give you the strongest positive motivation that I can give you to hold fast and to endure. And that's what we want to see here is this strong motivation 
the contrast between the danger of falling and now and what that takes and now the motivation uh, to to stay strong so overcoming any kind of falling away or apostasy and noting the idea of when God swore by himself uh, this this is a uh, is is something that ought to really urge us to press on I think a lot of people have given up a lot of Christians have given up because they decided I just can't do it I can't make it I'm too flawed there is no way God would accept me and this text ought to remedy that for for all of us let me begin now by noticing just a little bit about the transition between chapter 6 and beginning in verse 9 down through verse 12. Read those verses with me for a moment, would you? Uh, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You notice a few words with you if, you, if you will, as we look at that particular statement. Here is this beautiful picture in which the writer suddenly, the preacher, and I should, even though he wrote it, I should think in terms of hearing his sermon because that's the way he's delivering it. So the preacher here says these words after a very strong warning, though we speak in this way, we feel sure of better things. Look at those words, though we speak in this way. He fully understands that he's been pretty tough with them. He's come across very, very strong. Though we speak in this way, even though I've spoken to you very strongly and with this great warning, I want you to know that I feel sure and those with us, we feel sure of better things from you. We have confidence that you're not going to, to let this slip slide, you cause you to slide back and then lose your hope and lose your salvation. Later at the end of the letter, he said, I appeal to you brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. I think those two words, those two little phrases put together are a strong encouragement to us and a strong lesson to us. There's something about God's Word that sometimes is really tough. It really is straight. God can be very, very straight with His people. If you don't believe me, read the book of Amos. I think Amos only had five verses that were positive at all or said anything nice. <laughs> he, just, he just laid them out. For, for their sins. God can be tough and be, be straight. And he expects us to be strong and listen to that, to bear with the word of exhortation. There should be times when you and I read the word of God as the sharp two-edged sword, as he said back in chapter 412, and realize that it took some blood from us. It cut deeply and it hurt and we needed to be hurt. It needed to challenge us. And he doesn't apologize for that tough section. 
Don't be individuals who cannot bear with things. Don't be a people, in other words, who have their feelings hurt because something is said from God's Word that is tough and difficult. We need that. But then we also need this other side when when the writer says, but we're sure of better things of you. Bear with the Word, but we're sure of better things uh, from you. Now notice exactly what he's asking. In verse 12, he, he specifically says, so that you may not be sluggish. Tied together, this idea of we expect better things from you, and the better things are defined here in verses 11 and 12. Specifically, don't be sluggish. Through faith and patience, you want to follow the people who through faith faith. Faith and patience, if you put that together, uh, faith and patience, then uh, inherit the promises. Now, emphasize this word promises. He's not talking right now about faith. He's not, not talking specifically about patience. He's going to go into that a lot in chapter 11. But here he wants to emphasize the promises I don't want you to be sluggish. I want you to have the faith and the patience like others do to be able to inherit the promises that are coming. These are the better things. This is the way you ought to live. Don't be sluggish. Don't be slothful. But instead, through faith and patience, be like those who inherit the promises. Now notice the very next word in verse 13 of our text. For, for when God made a promise to Abraham. So you really want to circle that idea of for. He is now giving us the reason and the importance of trusting in God's promise. This promise went back to the time of Abraham. And I want you to have that zeal, that earnestness. By the way, in verse 11, show the same earnestness. I thought the definition of that in the Greek was interesting. It has the idea of both carrying with it diligence and enthusiasm. You can even see the contrast between sluggishness and enthusiasm. Diligent enthusiasm. We need to be enthusiastic for God because of what He is providing for us in these promises. Now, go from here and let's look at the blessing that was given to Abraham and this blessing that extends all the way then to us today. The first thing that I think is important to notice about this is that blessing was given 2,000 years before this writer, this preacher gives this lesson. The blessing was made 2,000 years previous. That's 4,000 years ago for us. 4,000 years ago, 2,000 from the time of Christ, 2,000 years God, before God had made a promise. Now, for most people, that's too long ago to wait for a promise to be fulfilled. 2,000 years ago? You're going to believe a promise that happened 2,000 years ago? Well, how about us? We're going to believe a promise that was made 4,000 years ago? All of our salvation, critical, 
This is not just, oh, something historical happened to Abraham. This is not just God made some kind of promise to Abraham. God's promise to Abraham has to do with your salvation and my salvation. If he doesn't keep the promise, we're all lost. This is the picture that he's giving. 4,000 years ago, this promise was made, which highlights then the emphasis of chapter 6, verse 12, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Emphasis now on faith and patience, a trust that he's going to keep his promise, patience that I'm not going to give up that hope of the promise. Even 4,000 years ago, we're going to rest the certainty of our salvation on a promise that God made to Abraham so many years even previous to that. Now ask this question. Abraham even, notice in verse 15, he's patiently waited and he obtained the promise. What promise did Abraham obtain? Well, that's the promise of Isaac. Isaac was the was the fulfillment for Abraham of what he God had said that in all nations you, you, you will be blessed because of this son I'm giving you. And the son he gave him came by miracle. That's important. Why would God give Abraham a son by miracle, waiting until after both Sarah and Abraham are dead in their bodies before he produces a child through them to indicate his power in order to keep his promise? When Abraham should have been able to just give up all hope, God then brings this child and says, There. That's, what, that's the way this is going to happen. It is important to keep those things in mind. Now, why would God cause his people to wait 2,000 years? Oh, wait a minute. Wait 4,000 years. Well, wait a minute. How much longer? Why would God cause his people to wait that long? I kind of smiled at that as I was thinking about it this morning. Why would he make us wait so long? He's, he's expecting to get the people who are never going to give up on the promise. What's going to make you give up? Nothing. He's, don't give up on the promise of God. And then he's going to illustrate why we shouldn't give up on that promise. But the blessing is made way back then. And the blessing is made at the most extraordinary time that fits with Abraham's life. And that's what we want to also notice here. The occasion from which the blessing was given. Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18. What's the occasion? God had said earlier in the chapter, take your son, your only son whom you love. In other words, the son I gave you miraculously, the son who is the son of promise, the son through whom the world's going to be blessed, the son from which I am going to bring all the blessings of, of the kingdom and the rest and the multiplicity of peoples that will come through you, that particular son, I want you to take him and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain that I direct with you. That's the kind of occasion in which once Abraham gave everything up 
picked up the knife in order to slay his son. And the last second, God stops him through the angel and says, Now I know. Now I know that you love me and that you will not give anything before me. And thus, therefore, here are the blessings, here are the promises I'm confirming in you. Those promises based upon that hope that Abraham had, a hope that was so strong that he said to himself, well, if I kill him, God will raise him from the dead. Why would he draw that conclusion? Because he made a promise that through this offspring, all nations would be blessed. He made a promise that through this offspring, the blessing would come and the great nation would come. And because he knew that and had hope in that, he believed he could even kill his son and God would raise him back to life. Now here's the specific blessing that is made reference, that, that the Hebrew writer is referencing in Exodus, Genesis 22, 17. Your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. All of us who've studied the Old Testament know that that didn't happen for the physical nation of Israel. In fact, if anything, the enemies were able to uh, possess the gate of Israel and not let them do what they wanted to do. But in this case, he says, no, what's going to happen is, is you are going to possess the gate of your enemies. You will conquer. You will be stronger than your enemies. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. It's the idea of the ultimate rest that he's already spoken of in Hebrews 4. You will then have rest. Rest from your enemies. They will not be able to conquer you. And you see that ultimately in chapter 21 and 27 of Revelation when he said nothing unclean will ever enter it, talking about the city of God, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here is then the rest. Israel never got rest that lasted any length of time whatsoever because of their sins. The enemy possessed their gates instead of the other way around. We now conquer because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now look more carefully at God's oath when he actually swore by himself. Look at the words specifically in the Hebrew, the Hebrew writer gives in verse 14. You see the words translated in the ESV and most of the modern versions as, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That is a shortened form of the way the Hebrew actually reads. New King James, King James, ASV renders it this way. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. Does that make a difference? Of course it does. Uh, he's, do, he's saying it twice. He's doubling the promise. It is the strongest way in the Hebrew that God could refer to the confirmation of what he was about to do. Blessing, I will bless you. Certainly, multiplying, I will multiply you. I am giving you an absolute promise that cannot be gone back on. The repetition shows the proof of it. 
Now here's the emphasis. God took an oath. Is that a shocking statement? That would be a shocking statement to us. God took an oath. Why didn't God just say, I promise, I promise I'll bless you. No, he doesn't do that. Has God ever lied? No. Well, God, why do you have to take an oath? An oath is given, as the text even points out, the oath is given in order to prove something, in order to make something sure. Well, God, you don't have to make anything sure. You've never gone back on your word. You've never, ever broken your word. You've never, ever lied. Why don't you just say, I promise? Because God wants to make something absolutely sure. I, I, I know this is simplistic, but I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, here's God going, okay, I, I need to make a promise to Abraham. Uh, I need to make a promise to all his offspring. Um, see, how am I, I okay, I, I know what, I'm, I'm going to make an oath. I want to make a promise, but, I, but that's not enough. I want to make an oath. I want to swear that I'm going to do this. Okay, so I'm going to swear by... Uh, 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 there's nothing higher than me. I guess I just have to swear by me. I'm going to swear by myself because I can't swear by anybody greater. And so he makes an oath in order to prove that he's going to do this. Now, it is important to realize that God making this oath here puts himself under a curse. This was the idea of an oath. It's not just a promise. He's putting himself under a curse, and he's saying, may I be destroyed? May I just be totally destroyed if I do not keep this promise? When, when God made the covenant with Abraham in the 15th chapter of Genesis, and he told Abraham to cut animals in half and put them in a line, and, and, and God then took himself through a burning flame and he went through the midst of these sacrificed, cut-in-half animals. He did so because he's saying, if I don't keep this promise, may I be cut in half and die and destroy, be destroyed like these animals. This is the impact of God swore by himself and didn't just say, yes, I promise. May I be destroyed utterly if I do not do as I have said that I would do. An oath, you notice in the text, in verse 16, is final for confirmation. And God says when people swear, they swear by themselves that in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. When God says this, he says, this is, this is absolutely final. It is going to happen. There is no question about it. And I'm trying to emphasize this by the oath that I am giving here. Now, notice the graciousness that God gives in this particular oath. And first, we need to highlight, though I'm sure you know this, God's oath was not made in order to keep himself from violating a promise. 
We might at times, and I've heard Christians do this, I've done it before as well, where I'm going to take an oath before God because I want to make sure I keep it. (laughs) I want to give myself motivation that I know full well I've got to keep this because I just made an oath before God, and woe is me if I don't keep the oath. So when, when we make an oath, we tend to do it for our concerns. When God made an oath, He's not doing it because He's concerned He's not going to keep it. He's doing it for our sakes. He's doing it in order to give assurance to us. Notice what he does. Look at these phrases that are used here. Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly. He didn't want to just convince us. He wanted to show more convincingly. I cannot help but think that God understood how challenging and difficult it would be for us to believe that we could possibly be saved. When somebody on earth makes a promise to me, I'm sorry, I've had it happen too many times where somebody, I can't count on them. People violate their word all the time. I've violated my word. You violated your word. We become people who are not trustworthy. It's the only reason An oath was made up in the first place to try to show ourselves more trustworthy than we are. But when God does this, He's not trying to simply emphasize that He keeps His word. He is trying to show us something that we need desperately to be able to count on a promise and an oath that there is no way can be changed. And so he wanted to show us more convincingly. He knew we'd have doubts. He knew we would have a hard time trusting that he could save us in spite of our sins and in spite of our faults. He knew that would be a challenge for us. And so he lays out this oath to show us more convincingly. Notice back in verse 11 in which the writer said, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnest, to have the same, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. What the writer is saying is, I want God wants you to have full assurance of hope to the end. Talked about this before. I grew up, many of you grew up. If you had to ask me earlier in my life, do you have full assurance of hope? A being to all the way to the end, to being with God, you have full assurance of hope. I probably would have said something like, maybe, kind of, if you say so. That's not God. what God intends. God does not intend for us to be wobbling through our lives a just wondering if the very next moment we'd die and lose our souls. That who knows when I get there if he'll accept me. That's not what he's looking at here. He is trying to give us full assurance of hope. Notice another phrase he gives in verse 18. 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. Two unchangeable things. God made a promise, first unchangeable thing. God made an oath, second unchangeable thing. In which, he says, it's impossible for God to lie. We grew up as kids going, can you think of something impossible for God to do? <laughs> yes, it is impossible for him to lie. That's impossible. That could never, ever happen. He cannot do it. It is not in his character. It is not part of his, if we would say, DNA. It isn't anything that's possible. Any more than be possible for you and I to jump off a high building and, and fly. It is not possible for him to lie. Thirdly, he says in verse 18 that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's what he's been leading to this whole time. He wants us to have endurance. He wants us to never fail. He says, I'm doing this so that you'll have strong encouragement. Please note the order here. God didn't say, if you'll work really, really hard, I'll make this promise and keep it. He said, here's my promise, I swear by an oath I'll keep it, therefore you have strong encouragement to not be sluggish. You have strong encouragement to strive to enter that rest. You have strong encouragement to overcome suffering because I made a promise and I can't lie and I made an oath to make sure you would know that this is going to happen. And based on that, you're going to live this way. You're going to give it your all. That's the idea. We put the cart before the horse. It's just like, well, um, you know, if you'll try, 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 try really, really hard, God might give you grace. If you live a perfect enough life, God might give you grace. Well, grace doesn't, isn't defined that way. God first gave us grace by dying on the cross for our sins. He gave us grace, which is the motivator to turn to Him and live by faith and patience and look for the end of the promises. His oath is a motivator. That's why this is in the text. Number one, motivator. I made an oath. Now back up to chapter 5, verse 11, when he said, i got so many things to tell you about Melchizedek that is so wonderful that will really help you, but you're dull of hearing and you have just been slacking off and sluggish. Why would you do that? God made this great oath. That's where he's leading here. The reprimand is because you're not responding to the swearing process and the oath that God gave you. That's the reprimand. Why would anybody be sluggish or slow or not endure whatever suffering that comes along. Because look, I didn't just promise you. I made an oath so that you would have strong encouragement to hold fast. You know that's a better motivator, don't you? <laughs> you know that's a so much better motivator. We're sure of better things of you. And the reason we are is because look what God has done. Look at these words. And then he gets down into 
the last. And he says that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Look at the word, sure, absolutely sure, steadfast. It's not going to move. It's not going to drag. It's not going to be anchored that goes all over the place. It's a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. So that anytime, anytime you think, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't keep trying, maybe I shouldn't give up, it's an anchor that brings you back to that and says, no, 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 no. He's made a promise and he swore by an oath that he would bless me. And it would be absolutely counterintuitive in every imaginable way without any common sense to turn around and not live as if the promise is going to happen. It's an anchor for the soul. Look at all the words there. More convincingly, full assurance, unchangeable, impossible, strong encouragement, sure and steadfast, anchor for the soul. These are all things that are continuing to emphasize the lack of our God's failure to keep his promise. But I know. Somebody says, well, yeah, but I, I don't always live just exactly right and all that. Yeah, that's why he swore with an oath and made a promise. So you'd have strong encouragement. In the text, there was just two sides to this coin. You either get sluggish and start giving up, or you strive to enter his rest. You push forward with earnestness and enthusiasm and zeal to have faith and patience that the promises are coming. In, the, in Hebrews 10... He says in verse 19, now with boldness we can enter into the most holy place. And then in verse 26, but if you go on sinning willfully, there's no more sacrifice for sins. Don't quit. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying. And then he goes on to talk about as despising the word of God. Are you despising the word of God even when you failed? Are you saying, too bad, I wanted to do it? No, that's not what you're doing. You're struck in your heart. You're sensitive to what has happened because you know you failed him. Not because, huh, well, good luck if you make it now. That's not what he's talking about here. He's urging them not to quit. Don't give up. Look at the promise. That's the message throughout. Yes, the suffering is difficult at times. Yes, the battle against sin is difficult at times. But don't give up because he made a promise and he swore with an oath he would keep it and he can't lie. That's the emphasis. <coughs> Final. Melchizedek. Now you're saying, what? <laughs> How did Melchizedek get in here? Oh, well, back in chapter 5 and verse 10, he started this by saying that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's designated that way. And just about the time he got there, he said, ah, I got so much to tell you about this, but you're just dull of hearing. You're just already falling asleep. And so how does he end chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus is gone? We have his hope that enters, verse 19, hope that enters into the innermost place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone 
as a forerunner on our behalf, have he become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Finally, he can get to, you have a high priest like Melchizedek who is going to fulfill and do and show you that God has made a promise and swore with an oath and it's an anchor for you and there's no way you can doubt because Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek. And to shorten, go right to the end. Turn your page in your Bible to chapter 7 and verse 23. And the preacher says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. That's because he's like Melchizedek. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, meaning completely and at all times, thoroughly, absolute, positively, completely, and at all times. He is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always lives to make intercession for them. Here's the idea. This is why we have strong encouragement to hold fast. Our Savior has gone into the most holy place. And He ever lives there in order to make intercession for us, saves us completely, never can die, never ends His priesthood. It's absolutely forever. We have that assurance and that's why we need to hold fast. And I might just add, remember, the holy place, the holy place is a figure of our eternal home. In Revelation, it's pictured as a great giant cube, just like the most holy place in the presence of God forever. And in chapter 10 too, the worshiper no longer has any consciousness of sin. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. Why wouldn't we hold fast? Why would we ever allow ourselves to be sluggish? And if we become that way, this is the text to go to. This is the text to go to and say, look, he's made this incredible promise and he swore with an oath he'd keep it. And Jesus, as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, has entered that most holy place and it's an anchor for our soul, absolutely sure and steadfast. Why would you give up? There's no reason. Hope that helps, helps me every day of my life. It's something we need to hold on to. If there's any way we can help you at this particular time, please talk to us afterwards, step forward during this song. Be glad to do so while together, while we stand and sing.